This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. This program contains topics that may be a trigger for some listeners. If you are affected, please call Switchboard or QLife 3pm to midnight daily on 1800 184 527 or Lifeline on 131114, 24 hours a day. You gotta see the baby. When are you gonna see the baby? Family matters. Good evening and welcome to Family Matters. I'm not Gina. We've had a leadership spill. I'm Beck. I've taken over. Um, I'm here tonight with Steph. Hello, Stephanie. Hello, Beck. And Clayton. Good evening. This is sort of leader. like old school, new school Family Matters. It is. Last week I had Dave. We were being OG Family Matters, but we're sort of old school, new school, which I like. Mixing it up a bit. Sure. Who are you calling old, by the way? No, old is in on the show for a long time. Oh, okay. Obviously youthful in both age and appearance. Mm-hmm. See, I'm a good leader. <laughs> I know how to impress people. Um, tonight we're going to be talking about an interesting, um, serious and unfortunately prevalent topic, which is family violence. And we did play a little... Uh, um, tag at the top of the show with some numbers if if anything we bring up is concerning and we'll play that again um, throughout the show. But we're going to be speaking to Felicity Marlowe from Rainbow Families Victoria who is part of a upcoming forum um, for family violence and other services uh, to talk specifically about family violence in the LGBTIQ community and Gina also caught up with Damien Riggs um, who talked about the really scary issue, I think, of pets and family violence. So a lot to get through tonight. We're going to have a song about kindness from Sesame Street to start the show. This is the things that I play when I'm here, which is Sesame Street, and yeah. I felt like we needed some kindness to start the show given what we're going to be discussing today. I yeah. like it. Enjoy Sesame Street. You're listening to Family Matters. This program contains topics that may be a trigger for some listeners. If you are affected, please call Switchboard or QLife 3pm to midnight daily on 1800 184 527 or Lifeline on 131114, 24 hours a day. You are listening to Family Matters. I'm Beck. I'm here with Stephen Clayton. And tonight we are um, talking about some issues in relation to family violence, some of the issues and, and some of the things we need to know about. On the line, we have the wonderful Felicity Marlowe, who is no stranger to our show. Um, but Felicity is here in the context of a family violence forum, I guess, that's upcoming that she's involved in. Welcome, Felicity. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. Thanks for, I was going to say thanks for coming in, but you're on the phone. Thanks for phoning in. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit about this forum that's coming up that you're involved in. So look, I am speaking tonight, I guess, in my capacity of a staff member at Clear Space at Drummond Street. So the forum is on Monday the 3rd of September and it's called Braiding Knowledge. And it really is just an opportunity for members of the family violence and I guess intimate partner violence sector to come along and sort of share their experiences and hear from a new um, group, I guess, or so integrated family violence service that's being launched specifically for the LGBTIQ community. Um, so that's called With Respect, and it's an organisation that, um, or a sort of a service that's being launched in collaboration with four key organisations that um, lots of 
family matters listeners would be very aware of. So um, Thorn Harbour Health, Queer Space at Drummond Street Services, Switchboard and Transgender Victoria have formed a consortia looking at the issues facing the LGBTIQ communities in relation to family violence and that this day, this forum, Braiding Knowledge, will be an opportunity to, to introduce that to the sector but also to our community as well. So Felicity, what are some of the um, issues that are specific to the community? Well, I guess one thing I just wanted to raise before we sort of go any further is that, you know, this is extremely important to acknowledge sort of the risk and safety issues around talking about family violence and talking about the um, opportunities that are for our communities to access services. It's, you know, very widely known um, that the family violence sector in Victoria, you know, has been doing an incredible amount of work and their legacy of decades of work of the family violence sector really needs to be acknowledged. Um, And the reason why there's been a particular focus on developing services and resources, particularly for the LGBTIQ communities, is because of the work that was done by several key organisations around the Royal Commission into Family Violence. And they were able to identify and show that there really is a need to also branch out to look at the impact of family violence and intimate partner violence in our own rainbow families, in our own relationships and in our community more broadly. So some of the key things that we do know from the research, particularly um, both internationally and nationally, is that our trans and gender diverse community, excuse me, you know, face some of the highest levels of violence um, within their relationships and that's the one particular area of focus that we, um, these services and with respect, will be focusing on. Um, and we also know that within our families of choice as well, like there's opportunities there to really ensure that the people that we love and the people that we live with and the people that we form our families with, um, you know, we're not immune to, I guess, because we don't, you know, we're not immune to um, experiences of family violence or intimate partner violence. And I guess those, you know, are not just, you may not may often think it's just around physical violence, but you know there's emotional violence, financial abuse in older and aged communities. There might be elder abuse. So there's a whole raft of areas of family violence and into a partner violence that our LGBTQ communities and our families are, you know, confronted with on a daily basis. But this is an opportunity, I guess, to highlight some of those and to talk about what's being done and what still needs to be done. That's a really big focus of the day. What are some of the questions that the service sector has? And how can we all work together respectfully to try and um, solve some of those concerns? It sounds like um, a day is not going to be enough, Felicity. I guess this is just a starting point <laughs> for you, as you say, and you can formulate uh, that next step. Yeah, look, absolutely. And it really is the culmination of years of work from some fantastic people at Queer Space, at Thorn Harbour, at Transgender Victoria, and of course, through the work that Switchboard does with the phone line and I guess also with our and about program. So um, there's many organisations that have really put in a lot of effort and a lot of research into thinking about how do we address family violence within our LGBTIQ community. So this is a chance on September the 3rd just to showcase some of the work that is being done, um, whether or not it's through an after-hours phone line, whether or not it's through some perpetrator, specific perpetrator programs or victim-survivor programs, um, so yes, some really unique work is being done in a field that potentially is quite new and emerging and innovative. Um, but again, like I was saying, it's all very new and just, I guess, an opportunity on that day to launch what with respect will look like and then 
as it grows, this will be um, an opportunity for more, for more services to be available to our community members. If members of our communities are experiencing family violence, what services does Queer Space offer to help? Well, I guess at the moment, um, Queer Space offers family therapy and counselling and that kind of level of support. What's really important to acknowledge is that um, this is a really new service sector. So it's not like there are physical refuges. There's not bricks and mortar to a lot of the services that can be offered at this point in time. So Queer Space, Thorn Harbour Health, Transgender Victoria and Switchboard all provide different levels of support at the moment to the community, as do a whole lot of other sort of unsung community groups that do a lot of peer-to-peer support around this work. But the first port of call really for anyone experiencing a level of family violence where they're at risk would be to call triple zero. And then if they are wanting to sort of at least have a beginning conversation, calling Switchboard or calling Q Life is a really great way to at least start an, a conversation. But the level of risk that people are at will always be assessed by an intake worker at any of the organisations that you call. Felicity, it's great to hear about um, this this new service with respect, but it, do you think there's scope too for um, education for some of the you know existing services that work in the family violence area to have some LGBTI-specific training or, or education for their services as well? So one of the recommendations for from the Royal Commission into Family Violence was specifically to target up to 19 mainstream specialist family violence services across Victoria to start to look at what would it take for them to perhaps potentially be accredited through the Rainbow Tick program that's offered through GLHV. But that's one particular area of training that's definitely happening. On the day um, at Braiding Knowledge on the 3rd of September, there will be a three or across um, two workshop sessions, one whole training program run by two practitioners from Queer Space, which will look at the queer and feminist sort of analysis of the family violence of family violence. And that'll be a really great beginning um, educative process, I guess, for some of the workers within the mainstream family violence and intimate partner violence sector. But again, you know, this is always about beginning that conversation and we need to look at not just inclusive practice being about stickers on the door or using correct pronouns or making sure that intake forms are inclusive, but it is actually a deeper understanding of why and how family violence and intimate partner violence exists within LGBTIQ communities, what it might look like, um, how to recognise it, but also potentially for our own LGBTIQ communities to start to realise what a healthy relationship looks like. And I do want to just sort of stress as well that now, there's also not a lot of research out there in terms of what it might look like within a intersex um, within the intersex community, and that's you know really important to sort of tease out that when we say LGBTIQ, we also need to be cognizant of you know the differences and the different ways in which some of the family violence or intimate partner violence experiences that we might be having will um, show themselves, and that that is something that we all need to be really aware of. Absolutely. So, Felicity, this sounds like a, an amazing forum. Who would you recommend coming along to it? So, I guess the day is really um, uh, an opportunity to welcome the mainstream family violence and IPV sector. So, we're inviting managers, practitioners on the ground, specialist workers, anyone in mental health, um, anyone in community health, anyone who might be in contact with anyone 
um, within the LGBTIQ community in terms of a primary health or um, support role because you just don't know what might be occurring when they go back to their family or go back to their partner at the end of the day. So anyone that um, has this as their core work, this is definitely something that um, they could take the opportunity to come along to. When you look it up on Eventbrite, you just go in and say, look up Braiding Knowledge and it'll come up as the Eventbrite. We, you'll notice that we've also made it the opportunity for LGBTI community organisations to come for free, for Aboriginal community organisations to also apply to come for free and anyone who lives in a rural or regional area further than 150 kilometres from central Melbourne to also email in and apply for free because we want to make sure it's accessible um, and, a, and an opportunity for people to be part of this beginning conversation. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much, Felicity. Perhaps we can have you back after the after the conference to tell us what came out and, and what sort of things are happening. But um, we hope it goes wonderfully and thanks for joining us on Family Matters. No worries. Thanks for having me. See ya. Family Matters is brought to you today by the letters L-G-B-T-I-Q-A and the number one. This is Family Matters. I'm Beck, and I'm with Stephen Clayton. And tonight we're unpacking some of the issues um, around family violence, particularly for the LGBTI community. Our next uh, little chat is one Gina had a while ago with Damien Riggs, who's talking about pets and family violence. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll come back after this. Damien, thank you so much for joining us here at Family Matters. Now, you've been part of a, a new paper which is called The Link Between Domestic Violence and Abuse and Animal Cruelty in the Intimate Relationships of People of Diverse Genders and All Sexualities. Tell us a little bit about what made you look into this particular area. So the study was done with some colleagues from Flinders, Nick Taylor and Heather Fraser and a colleague from Queensland, Tanya Signal, and another colleague from the UK, Catherine Donovan. Mm. And it all started because Catherine came to visit us here in Adelaide for a workshop on DV, and I was asked to do a talk about transgender women and DV mm-hmm. because I have a background in working in transgender studies. So I had to go off and read that literature, yeah. and I went... I learned a lot and I was sort of amazed at some things I'd never thought about that may be very specific to how trans women experience TV. So then fast forward a bit of time, we were sort of working, you know, maybe the, the five of us would collaborate on something. And Nick and Heather are very big, well-known researchers in the area of, of what is called the link, in inverted commas, between human to human violence and mm-hmm. human to animal violence. And they said, look, no one's ever looked at this for lesbian, gay, bisexual and trans people. We should do this. And so because I'd sort of done that work around trans women and domestic violence, I could see there was something to be done here that we could make a really useful contribution. Previous research looking at the link between human and animal violence in heterosexual couples has found that an animal, so an animal can be used to control someone. So if you don't do this, I will hurt the dog. If you don't do this, I will tie them up. But then it can also then lead to or escalate to violence against an animal, and that can include physical violence, emotional, sexual. It can be financial in terms of you know, not just refusing to buy food for them. And we know that when those two co-occur, so when there's violence against an animal and violence against a human, 
the violence against the human will be more highly escalated than it would have been otherwise. So this, it's sort of a pattern of escalation that leads to some really, you know, serious outcomes as, as does all domestic violence, but yeah. including for the animal. We uh, put a call out through our channels through, you know, we had a whole lot of organisations that we contacted and said would they share the information. We did Facebook ads as well. And I think it was just like I spoke to Joy recently mm-hmm. around fertility preservation for yes. trans people. Sometimes you just come across a topic that you think should be researched yeah. and other people think should be researched and people leap on it. So we were sort of watching the numbers go up very quickly wow. and thought, okay, so we're on to something that people are very interested in here. I think because of that focus on animals. But I think because we were tapping... And, you know, the survey didn't only speak about violence. It also spoke about loving relationships with animals. So I think that sort of dual focus yeah. was of interest to people, a chance to speak about animals because, as you said, like it's odd and surprising, but no one really has looked at, other than a very small number of studies, the relationships that LGBT people have with animals. So we had we used a scale, one's called the liking people scale, which is really liking humans, mm-hmm. and then the other is liking animals. And it just asked people how they see the role of animals in their lives. So do you see animals as, I guess, an object and they should be left outside and, Mm -hmm. you know, mind their own business or should they be in the house part of the family? And overwhelmingly our participants said that they saw animals as part of the family, that, you Mm -hmm. know, they don't belong behind bars, they should be in the house with you, sharing your life. Mm -hmm. So that probably wasn't of any great surprise to us, but it was interesting nonetheless to find, to sort of ask people those questions. So we asked people, you know, had they experienced family violence? And if they had, what form it took? And then we asked, was that violence extended to an animal in the house? And how did that look? And what kind of support did you access for yourself and for an animal? So I think it was something around three quarters of our participants lived with an animal companion and around a quarter of our participants had experienced violence from a family member and of those, a small number, an animal had also um, experienced violence from a family member. And that was, an, I guess, an interesting thing to mention is that we also looked at intimate partner violence and those numbers were much higher in intimate partner violence, so much, many more incidences of an animal being hurt by an intimate partner than we found from a family member, but it still wasn't zero from mm. a family member. Mm. So that's an interesting difference, but that difference actually does tend to play out in the literature in general that it's more likely that your intimate partner is going to, to hurt you and your animal than an extended family member is going to come into your home and hurt you and your animal. When we looked at the family violence, we looked at violence against animals, it was our trans and non-binary participants who were more likely to have experienced abuse from a family member. That's terrible. It is, and it sort of connects to, um, there's someone who's done some great research, and this is actually how I came, again, as I mentioned earlier, how I came into this topic was research on trans women and there's a, a great researcher in the UK who did her PhD on trans women domestic violence, and she uses this term transphobic honour-based violence. So, you know, honour-based violence, this is the same sort of thing, but around transphobia. So family members saying they feel shamed or embarrassed that a family member's trans, and so they take that out on the family member by trying to control them, belittle them, dismiss them, say they don't exist, like whole 
complex range of forms of violence against trans people by family members. So the first thing was what we've already talked about, which is you can't talk about something unless you know it's a thing. So we needed to know it was a thing. And, you know, who knows? We could have come up with a whole different set of data and it would have directed us in a different way, but we haven't. We've shown really that this is an issue. And so we're doing a number of things in response. One is we've just finished doing interviews on a follow-up study, speaking Mm -hmm. specifically to... Um, lesbian, bisexual and or trans women around their relationships with animal companions and including what women need from service providers. And then we're doing a lot of work and Nick and Heather are at the forefront of this for advocating for link-ups between TV shelters and animal shelters Mm. so that if a person's leaving a relationship that's violent, they know they can take the animal with them. Even if they can't, in some cases, be in the the women's shelter with them, they can be housed safely and return to the person when they have accommodation. So that's a big focus of Nick and Heather's is getting those services. I know in Victoria there is one or or more that there is in Sydney. We've just recently had one set up in, in Adelaide. And it's a real passion of ours, I think, is around ensuring that those barriers to leaving relationships, violent relationships, which often are animals, don't have to be a barrier. And it links so well to what we know of the literature, particularly on lesbian women, that historically service providers said, well, what would two women do to each other? Exactly. Same as you know, people's misperceptions about lesbian intimacy. You yeah. know, People just can't grapple what that would look like. So they would say, oh, they're just having a tiff. It wouldn't be taken seriously. And I think it's the same thing with animals. It's either not taken seriously or not valued. If an animal life isn't valued, well, violence against an animal isn't valued. And that's part of our broader, sort of much broader focus and then the interviews with women we've just done is how does all this connect to things like, you know, veganism, animal welfare, animal cruelty in general. You know, many of our participants said things like, well, it's great to oppose violence against animals, but not if you're at a barbecue where you're eating meat, you know, like, so those intersections of we're willing to kill an animal in one place, but in another place we go, oh, no, no, don't hurt animals. So that was something we were really interested to speak to women about was around how they saw those intersections. I think some of the, and I just did some of this yesterday, like some <laughs> training around this yesterday, and I think part of it is about having general population or service providers as part of general population understanding these stereotypes and how they operate. So a lot of how particularly cisgender partners of trans women make abuse happen Mm. is by drawing on cultural stereotypes so Mm. that no one else is going to question it. If you intentionally misgender your partner in public to shame them, well, that's part of a cultural narrative where misgendering trans people is often treated as acceptable. Treating someone, a trans woman, as less than is, is culturally acceptable. We see this in the media all the time. So when an intimate partner does that, who questions it? So it is about challenging all of those stereotypes are harmful, no matter who perpetuates them. But by perpetrating them in society, and and I I do point to the media as part of this, how our lives are represented in the media, that they just sort of give rise or they give permission to then intimate partners using those same tactics of control. So it is about challenging them. You know, we know a key form of violence that LGBT people experience is the threat to out someone. 
or the threat to say, you're too out, stop talking about this. And this is all part of a broader cultural narrative where, you know, we might have marriage equality, we might have access to, to IVF, we might have this and that, but there's still a, a whole lot of stigma and stereotypes that then becomes drawn upon and used in violent context. So it's interesting because what you tend to see in the literature and we saw in our paper is very gendered differences. So we know that men in general as a category tend to see violence as physical violence. Okay. And that's what gay men tend to report. Whereas lesbian women can tend to be, whether it's from lesbian feminism or political awareness, more attuned to more subtle forms of violence. And so you do see these really high rates of intimate partner violence in, in lesbian women's relationships. And literature suggests that's because women are more attuned to what violence looks like. Yeah. So part of it, again, is about, and this is part of the broader cultural narrative on DV, is shifting this so that we understand that there are lots and lots of different ways that violence can occur. It's not just punching someone. Okay. So that we're aware that there's this whole pattern of escalation that happens that often perhaps men in particular may not be attuned to. And it's about shifting that narrative so that we're not, and certainly the you know, DV sector in Australia is very focused on this, is you know, shifting the focus away from just the punch and to the very subtle things that people do. It's fascinating to know that because it's so dangerous because it usually escalates, it usually starts with yeah. that emotional control, financial control or that yeah. shame aspect. It starts with where are you going, who were you seeing, yeah. what were you doing, why were you doing it, yeah. oh, can you not go out tonight to... I'm going to lock the door to, you know, it, it, it does. It starts really, often. Oh. I mean, it can start from zero to 100. Yeah. It can start with a punch, but it can also start with really subtle things. And that can be yeah. in how we see people treating animals. It can yeah. be in, you know, entering into a new relationship and seeing someone being very dismissive or cruel towards an animal. It can be that. That can be the starting place. And that should be an alarm bell. Again, me as a yes. layperson, my, most of my friends joke that when they're on the dating sites, if they see someone with a pet, they're in. You know, the minute you see someone love an animal, you realise, oh, that, that's an attractive feature of somebody to see the, how yes. they they treat an animal. So, if you are entering a relationship and seeing someone treating an animal that way, that should be sparking immediate alarm bells. How? And that's what the yeah. link is about. It's a red. I mean, that's what the literature uses it as, as a red flag. Huge red but flag. you know, we're interested in yes, definitely. The, the treating an animal poorly is a red flag that that person may treat humans poorly as well. But we also want to care about the animal. They're not just a red flag. Of course, of you know, course. we work with the idea of the canary in the coal mine. They're not just a canary in the coal mine. Yeah. You know, they're not just there to tell us something might go wrong. They also we need to protect them as well. The first study we did as part of this wider sort of group of studies was looking at DV service provision for trans women. And a lot of what we found that the service providers are up against is the past, the past where trans women could not go to women's only shelters, where there was discrimination, where there was transphobia, let alone if you have an animal that you need to take with you. And yes, there's still going to be services out there. I'm not going to make a promise that there's no services that, that aren't or no individuals in services that aren't transphobic. But it is about being aware, okay, things slowly are changing. Uh, it may have been in the past that you couldn't access a service, but now there are services that you can access and that are very inclusive and that you can bring an animal along with you too or who can be safely housed. Mm. So it is about 
you know, we need to acknowledge that services haven't done right by our communities often, mm. and sometimes maybe still they don't. Mm. But that if we want to be part of that sort of process of change, we need to be open to things are changing. Otherwise, you know, services will say, oh, we've done all this training and we're inclusive and then no one comes through the door because everyone thinks they're not inclusive. And they go, oh, say, we didn't need that. We didn't need to be inclusive of that group of people because they don't come to us. Yeah. And it just perpetuates that cycle of communities feeling shut out and services thinking the community don't need them. We need to have that sort of, you know, those conversations that there are services there. One... And then we need the conversations around when I mean, you and I can talk yeah. and say, look, we know that this is how DV might look in there's been relationships, this is how DV might look in that relationship, but community members don't necessarily know those things. And yeah. so it is about this kind of conversation and someone might listen to this and go, oh, wow, those things that my partner's doing, that's actually really not okay. So it is about those conversations need to happen as well. The big difference we've found and why we've done this follow-up study is that, sure, People, regardless of their gender, regardless of their sexuality, many people love animals. We know that's sort of a universal and that many people live with animals. What seems to be specific for LGBT people and particularly for women is a sense that I live in this world that discriminates against me, that's transphobic, that's heterosexist, and I come home and my animal loves me. My animal doesn't give a crap about my gender. They don't question me. They love me that different meaning that, that the heterosexual people may or, or cisgender people may not be oriented to in regards to their animals. And so when you come to a situation where there's violence and that violence involves the animal, how you respond. So we, you know, we looked at some of the responses to some of our open-ended questions and participants, some participants said, you know, I see violence happening towards the animal. I know I need to leave the relationship because I need to keep my animal safe. Mm. But other participants said... I can't leave this relationship for a number of reasons. I don't have anywhere to go. I don't feel safe. I've got no one's got my back. And so I'm staying here and I'm going to take the brunt of it all so that my animal is not hurt. And so that, sure, those things can happen in heterosexual and cisgender relationships, but because of that extra layer of meaning that animals may have, um, you know, some people spoke to us about their, their animal was the first person they came out to. Their animal was the first person they spoke about their gender to. And... When you bring that layer of violence into that relationship, mm. it makes can make it even harder for people to leave if they feel they can't take an animal with them. And it's so interesting to me because when we began doing this research, we sort of really looked hard. What's in the literature in this area? And yeah. the bulk of it, and from early on in the 80s, was around gay men living with HIV and the meaning of animals to them and how important animals were at a time when people felt very socially isolated, that very few humans cared for them, that animals brought such meaning and such companionship. And if you look at each wave of HIV futures, there is a question in there about animal companionship. And animals are one of the highest rated support sources for people living with HIV who complete HIV futures. So that was where we first sort of came into this research as well as, as looking at trans women's experiences. And it's interesting that that was given so much attention early on in the HIV literature and yet where where is that narrative around animals going now? Why are we still not talking about it so prominently now? So we're hoping to, to so we're writing up or just started writing up this, these interviews we've done so as a follow-up to the original survey mm. and we're just sort of trying to now map out what this looks like because you raised a really important point before that people 
Once they hear these findings, often people's response is, this sounds a lot like the general DV literature or the general family violence literature. Mm. Well, absolutely it is. Sure, there's inflections around some of the specific ways trans people experience violence, specific stuff around HIV, specific stuff around the meanings of animals around coming out. But even if a lot of it overlaps, there's still this huge gap in awareness Mm. in community and in service provision around animals and around violence in LGBT communities. So I think even if lots of it's really similar, you don't know that until you know that. You don't know that until you speak about that. Because otherwise the presumption is, historically, oh, there's not violence in lesbian relationships. Oh, you know, there's, there's, there's just, there's no attention to anything other than historically, you know, gay men in relationships being physically violent towards each other. There was attention to that and that was pathologized. But there's so little attention and awareness to it. And you said off air, like, yeah. I mean, a very important point, which is, is this a taboo topic to talk about? Is because it? Is there shame? We yeah. already face so much crap. Do we want something that other people can then say, and particularly the Christian right, say, see, well, exactly. we told you all along. And I don't know how much that's part of why this narrative isn't more, more public. I think part of it comes back to what I said earlier, which is that... There are all these stereotypes that we're all trying to combat, but those stereotypes also manage how we see ourselves as a community and how we are willing to be aware of certain things or or willing to say, oh, that's just normal. Those things that happen in those particular kinds of relationships, that's just normal. Well, that's maybe it's not normal. Maybe it's just a stereotype. Damien, thank you so, so much for helping us start this conversation. It's a very, it's a very difficult conversation. It's a very big conversation that we be talking about this more openly without fear without hesitation and and here I am hesitating really scared to be having this conversation because I feel like I'm not equipped yet even with the language but thank you so much thank you so much for this study please keep us in touch with the published results we'd we'd love to be able to share that with the audience because sometimes it is I know for myself it is reading a story already seeing again reflections of ourselves and going that that's me, and that's what these yeah. these personal accounts and and interviews might do to others to go. Actually, that's my so. story. Thanks so much. This program contains topics that may be a trigger for some listeners. If you are affected, please call Switchboard or Q Life three pm to midnight daily on one eight zero zero one eight four five two seven or Lifeline on one three one 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 four twenty four hours a day. Family Matters on Joy ninety four point nine. This is Family Matters on Joy 94.9. I'm Beck. I'm here with Clayton and Steph. And tonight we're unpacking, I guess, the um, important and probably not often enough talked about issue of family violence. Yeah, and Beck, before the show, you and I were having a little bit of a chat about your work as a family lawyer. And I was asking you if uh, dealing with family violence was the worst part about your job. And you said to me... It's one of the biggest parts of my yeah. job. And I think I think that's a really, um, well, it's probably a sad indictment on society. But I, I think one of the things is that I think as a society, it's much less hidden than it used to be. I think probably in years gone by, I think there were two things. I think one, people just assumed violence was being physically abused. And I think, too, people just didn't talk about it. Okay, so let's talk about it a little bit. And, and perhaps you can explain to us what what violence, domestic violence is, because 
you know, that, that definition has changed and evolved over time, hasn't it? So let's actually start on that point, which we have stopped using the phrase domestic, domestic violence, violence. Um, and moved on to family, family violence, violence. Yeah. just because it doesn't always happen in the domicile. So it happens lots of different places. It's interesting, though, because a lot of people, when we change that terminology, a lot of people don't like the term family violence because they think it lessens the seriousness of it in that it gives it a, a you know, when you put the word family in a, a nicer tone. So there's actually a lot, of, it, yeah. a lot of people that, that feel like that definition doesn't give it the seriousness that it deserves. I don't know. I mean, it's it's there's a reason for it, but it, that is something yeah, that, that's that people people mention so uh there's also talk to you know uh, uh, that calling it what it is and in terms of statistics more than anything else and calling it male violence so there's reasons not to do that as well absolutely and and you know that brings in what we've been talking about about the issues with with the queer community and the the specifics i guess for for the community that are different to the heterosexual community but but I think it's really important to talk about what family violence is and how broad it is because, as I said, I think in some quarters of the world there's still a perception that unless it's physical, it's not violence. So the, I guess the law in Victoria we have, which is the um, Family Violence Protection Act, is really broad in the terms of what it defines as violence. So physical violence is is family violence, but it can be all kinds of things. It can be sexual abuse, economic abuse, verbal abuse, emotional or physical abuse, threat to harm oneself or someone else, and and that's a big one. You know, if you leave me, I'll do this, that and the other to myself. That's a really, really big one. Pet abuse, which we touched on earlier, um, and that's either abuse actually to a pet or taking a pet from someone which can be really um, difficult because there's a lot of the um, safe houses and shelters that people go to, particularly women, most of them don't take pets. And so that often leads people to stay in a violent relationship because they don't want to leave without their pet, which is really scary. Property damage, controlling or threatening behaviour, economic abuse, which is something we're seeing more and more these days, So explain economic abuse to me. So um, economic abuse, there's a whole lot of things that come under that. So it can be um, coercing someone to hand over their assets or income. So saying, you can go to work, but all your income has to come into my bank account and I'll give you whatever you need, often usually not enough to support yourself. It can be taking their property, so, you know, just taking people's things from them, disposing of property. Um, another one is about stopping people keeping employment, which is something we do see. So mm. saying you can't go to work, you have to stay at home, and even to a level of physically locking people in houses and those sorts of things so they don't have that independence. Another one that unfortunately we see a lot is coercing people to claim benefits. So saying you have to go to Centrelink and say we're not together so you can get more money. And people are concerned and fearful and so they do that. Um, signing contracts, signing guarantees, signing mortgages, all those sorts of things. Mm, I reckon that must be a, a common one. It really is. And, it, and it's something that people often don't realise until they're out of the mm. situation because I think the natural assumption is, oh, well, that's just how we do things in our relationship. And it's, and it's not till I guess someone educates them or, or something like that that they realise. But, you know, it can be things like um, keeping people from their culture. So saying, you know, if, if people are of a certain religion or ethnicity, saying you can't go and, and meet with other people of your culture, that's something that really um, often happens. Forcing culture is the other thing that can happen. So the complete inverse of that. So Absolutely. forcing some culture onto people. And look, there's there's a lot of things too that are, you know, less less 
uh, thought of. I mean, often there's a big one that happens with the queer community, which is threatening to out people to their friends or family if they're not out, and that's a form of family violence because it's threat or control. We've heard stories from the trans community about partners withholding their medication, which, I mean, is huge for anyone, but particularly, you know, if you're a trans person. So I I think it's just really important to think about the broad nature of family violence, and those are the sorts of things that when people are experiencing family violence and they need protection and they go to the police or the court to get an intervention order, the magistrates in the courts who decide about those intervention orders are really well educated about the breadth of family violence and also about how insidious it is because some of this stuff's really subtle. Yes. So let's just take a step back because this is something that Felicity mentioned during the interview. You know, if someone is experiencing family violence, that first step is, she suggested, to call triple zero. But for the LGBTI community, there is a a fantastic service. Well, there is, there's the Glows, who we've had on our show recently. And they're, they used to be called the Gay and Lesbian Liaison Officers, which is what Glow came from, but I think they just call themselves the Glows now. But they're a specific unit within the police who are, um, deal with LGBTI people and their specific issues. And it's, they're really, there's a lot of them now, a lot more Mm. than there used to be. And it's so important because, understandably, the queer community often has a mistrust of police Mm. because of, you know, terrible history, Mm. whether to them or themselves or the community in general. So it's important to know that, you know, that those people are there within the police force. So if you don't feel comfortable with the general police, they are there. But I mean, as Felicity said, I can't emphasise enough, if it's an emergency, triple zero is what you need to do and the police have powers they can issue safety notices which are effectively on the spot intervention orders if they're called to an incident otherwise you know people can can go to the court and do it but there's i think if you're if you're not sure be safe that's always my advice and i think it's really important that you access any service that you need to in order to get help so um the glow officers are there and that's fantastic but there are other services if you kind of not ready to move out of the situation so going to places like queer space or call, even just calling switchboard who will direct you to the right place and probably heaps of other services that don't have the details for me right now absolutely and you know lawyers we're not terrible people either you know that's that's a stop myth busting i know i can't but that's a large proportion of what we do as family lawyers is help people that need intervention orders to help them get it because often when you're in that situation you're lost and you don't want to be left by yourself to go to a court or go to a police because the police are great but if if you're making your application through a court, you need to get in the witness box and give evidence to a magistrate, which can be really scary. So um, they have great supports at the magistrate's court as well. They have really good support services for people. They have really good safety setups there. So I think it's really important to know there are things out there that can help you and services and people. I want to come back and talk about some of the myths around family violence, which I really would love to hope that people don't have these myths in their minds, but a lot of them are really quite confronting and people would probably challenge them as being a myth and actually being a fact. So uh, let's come back and talk about that. You're on Family Matters on Joy 94.9. 
You are listening to Family Matters on Joy. I'm Beck and I'm here with Clayton and Steph and we've been really um, unpacking the important issue of family violence tonight, haven't we, Clayton? We have and this is an issue that is really important to me because it involves a lot of the work I now do in schools So we're going to talk about that towards the end of the hour just because what I'm doing in schools that I'm the administrator of in my school but I'm not certainly the instigator of anything but it's actually quite a positive thing around family violence. So. And I mean, so great to start with kids so that, you know, hopefully... I mean, it's such a, um issue in our community that if we can start with educating kids, then hopefully it's something we can eradicate. Yeah. I'm also trained in talking to teachers about how to acknowledge student disclosure, which is a really important thing because teachers don't necessarily have this information to start with and they, and they make mistakes. With teachers and student disclosure, one of the important things that we do is we actually report no matter what. So we don't go, oh, but I know that family. Yeah. Um, you know, they're a lovely family. They can't be doing this. Which is the thing is that family violence doesn't discriminate. It doesn't. No. So I, you know, will go and make the report no matter what. And there can be safety issues for teachers. So it is actually an important and with its own way, brave thing to do. So, And I think that's important too, because my experience is, is that school is often the one safe place for kids that are having this at home. And so their teacher may well be the first person that they ever tell about it. Absolutely. And they, they don't necessarily even meaning to tell. It just mm. comes out suddenly in the middle of something. And yeah. And also a really important thing is that as teachers, we don't investigate. Yeah. So, and it just means that when students disclose to us, we don't go and try and find out more information. We just make the report. Yeah. And other people deal with that which, again, is half the teachers because we want more information. We want to know that we're doing the right thing, but we just have to do what the law tells us to do, and it is a legal thing. We have, we're mandated, mandated reporters. We have to report, and so we just make sure that happens. And is that something teachers get educated on regularly? We do once a year, actually. Yeah. It gets a, we get a refresher. Now that I have the student disclosure thing that I'm trained in doing, it means that teachers come and talk to me about it as well when they have issues in their class and you know that's really good because i'm happy for that to happen and i the advice i've got to give them is the advice that i've taken from a place as well so it's not just me saying this is what you should do it's actually passing on correct information which is always a good thing absolutely there are a lot of myths that go around with family violence and it's the myths can be really dangerous in if they people believe them it can stop people accessing services, getting help, going to police and all sorts of things like that. So the first myth that is up on my list is family violence is rare and doesn't affect many people. So it actually affects about one in four Australian women, which is huge. It's scary, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. You know, when you think of how many women you know... It's a huge amount. Like, if you, even if the women you don't know, if you just mathematically work out how many women in Australia and then divide that by four... That's right. And I, and I guess it goes back to what I was saying before about it doesn't discriminate. So it doesn't discriminate by age, um, economic status, you know, geography, any of those things. Family violence can happen in all kinds of relationships and families. And the really scary statistic behind it all is on average a woman a week is killed by the oh, a yeah. form, current or former partner. Yeah. We are currently well ahead of that. It's just fine. So I think terrifying. so far this year 30 six women have been killed yeah Yeah. it's around that number anyway so um finally family violence only happens in poor uneducated or minority families well we know that's not the case definitely not and especially like a lot of these things that are considered violence like financial yes uh, that definitely had to do with people with more 
money. Money. Yeah, <laughs> so, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. control as well, you know, power, money, yeah. control. Well, there's all... a definite connection there. Yeah. Mm. yeah, power tends to corrupt and so does money. That's right. Yeah, so family violence happens because men get angry and lose control. So um, family, and the fact here behind that is family violence is about gaining control, not a loss of control. Mm. Using violence as a choice an abuser makes. Absolutely. So it's not, it, you're not... The first statement, the myth, gives men permission to do it. Mm. That's right. Like, oh, you just got mad. You must have mad. You must have said something. Yeah. yeah. And you provoked re- him. That's right. Yeah, and that's, that's a just... really common myth too mm-hmm. that, you know, you must have done. What did you do to cause it? Yeah. Which is, guess what's next on my list? Oh. Uh, family violence happens because women provoke men. Yeah. And mm. it's definitely not the case. Men... And in most of this stuff does talk about male violence against women because statistically it is the most. And it's not just a little bit statistically, no, it is huge. massively. So this is all these things are around that. doesn't mean the other stuff doesn't happen. It just you kind of have to prioritise sometimes. That's and right. They're all important, but yeah. So uh, If a woman was in real danger, she would just leave. If she hasn't left, it can't be that bad. Can I tell you, that is something that, you know... used to be even something that happened in courts and those sorts of things that, you know, why haven't you left? Whereas now we know that that's why women don't leave because they are controlled and they're too scared to leave. Mm. And then also, you know, it's leaving doesn't always solve the problem. That's the other thing. You know, those statistics of women being killed talk about former partners as well. And and there's a really uncomfortable narrative that happens around um, women being killed by their partners when those women have control of their lives back. And, Beck, do you know any of the, the stats around the amount of times women actually leave before they finally do leave? I don't, but anecdotally... It would be more than one. From my memory, and I haven't got anything to back this up, I think it's three mm. is the kind of... Oh, I heard yeah. something, and it was it was an American podcast that I was listening to, and it was nine. Right, well, I'm happy to be completely we, yeah, wrong so, on that. Yep. But, but no, but, but I mean, that could be in the States, you know, it could be the statistics could be completely different. But I was, I was blown away by that number, thinking that it takes a woman nine times before she actually finally goes. And to say, you know, if, if it's not that bad... Or if you stayed, it can't be that bad. Is just so naive and so dangerous. And belittling and... Yeah. Yeah. And just shows a complete misunderstanding of control and coercion. Mm. I'm going to skim over the next one. I'm going to mention it, but I'm just going to skim over it. Only physical violence counts as family violence. We've already had a conversation around that, so I won't go into that. Uh, Children aren't really affected by family violence between their parents. Can I tell you what's interesting about that is obviously the answer is yes, but when... We, the Family Violence Protection Act actually has a broader definition when it comes to children and what constitutes violence. So when it comes to children, the legislation actually spells out things like comforting family members who've been abused by another family member, having to help clean up after an incident, even being present when emergency services come. So there is a real understanding that um, the impact on children can be huge. And even if children themselves aren't being, not even physically assaulted, emotionally assaulted, just being in that environment and, and seeing that from their parents can have hugely lasting impacts on them. It only takes a child to witness family violence for us to consider them to be a victim of family Correct. violence. So anything past that is in, in just increased. So um, Children, another one. Uh, violent men come from violent homes. So Sometimes they might, but often they won't. 
It is true that some men who are violent come from violent backgrounds, but many men who abuse women and children do not. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it doesn't. You don't need a background to do this. It just it can be self sort of happening. Um, the last one on this list, I, I have seen more extensive lists, and I might bring those up in different weeks um, if we ever cover this topic again, which I think we probably will. So, lots of women make fake claims about family violence or exaggerate how bad the abuse is. That would have to be the, probably the falsest statement of them all because people under underplay these situations. Correct. Uh, false claims about family violence are extremely rare. 80% of women who experience violence from a con- current partner don't contact the police about it. Correct. So, That's the actual problem. Yeah, they're actually There's more so likely not to contact. so much shame around it, yeah. Mm. Um, and I think that's a lot of abusers trying to create that myth in order to protect themselves. Correct. So... Mm. Mm. We did mention earlier that um, I'm involved in my school in something which is called Respectful Relationships. And what that is, is an anti-family violence program, which actually is a proactive program. So rather than reactive, so we're dealing with the effects of violence, we're actually making students have positive relationships going into the future. So, and particularly male male having positive relationships with women. So this is... This is the good news part about the show, it is, Clayton, yes. isn't it? And we needed to end on a hopeful note because, I mean, it's such a difficult topic to, to talk about, um, but it's such an important topic to talk about. But with your respectful relationships training, Clayton, who is instigating that and, you know, what's the impetus around it? So basically it came out of the inquest, it wasn't an inquest, Royal, Royal Commission, Commission, Royal Commission yeah. family uh, into family violence. There were over 200 recommendations that came out of that inquest, which tells you how much of an under-dealt with issue this is. And one of the recommendations was a school program, and that's what Victoria in particular and the Victorian government has gone forward and done. They've created this respect for relationships. It has a huge bucket of money that goes into it. Um, there are people employed to train others, and that's what I... Um, I get training from those people, and then I take that back to my school, and I train people at my school. There are lesson plans that are completely created, so the teachers don't have to actually prepare anything other than looking at the lesson plan, maybe photocopying some materials, which I recommend minimal amount anyway, but um, and just going in and teaching the lessons. It is really easy for teachers to do. The expectation is 10 lessons across the year, I hope that teachers will aim for higher than that, but it's a, it's a doable expectation. And so what sort of things are you teaching the kids in those lessons? So it's, it starts off with looking at emotions. So it has eight different sectors, and I can't list them off the top of my head, but um, the first one is looking at emotions and the effect of those, and, and then it's like con- some things around controlling and managing your emotions and then into personal relationships and fair play and all those sorts of things that you know, create anger issues and stuff like that. So having giving the kids the tools to deal with that anger and therefore be able to deal with that anger later in life. And is the is the is the thought process I guess behind it that if we start with kids then these won't be problems for them when they're adults. Yeah, so this is means that if we're doing this now means that when they're adults they'll have those tools and it will reduce it will never it will hopefully it will but mm. it will never actually completely get rid of family violence but it hopefully will reduce horrible statistics Mm. so um and it then goes into other things around today uh, the training i'm at today was talking about gender and sexuality and so um and then also pornography and things like that because what people see in pornography teaches 
us horrible ways to run relationships. Mm. Huge amounts of violence and women like things that they probably, most mm. women don't like, which mm. is absolutely fine if you do like those things. I'm not judging if you do, but there's, mm. you know, telling men that women like this to happen when it's actually just a myth in pornography. So, um, and I do have to talk to about five and grade five and grade six students about pornography because unfortunately, because of devices and phones and all these mm. things, they're accessing that material. Yeah, and they need to understand it, don't they? Um, So what was the biggest takeaway from today, Clayton? Uh, I think just one thing was around, you know, the laws around sexting. And I can't, I haven't got time to go into those now, but that actually could be another show, definitely. Mm. Um, sexting is quite an emergent legal issue. I don't know you, how extensively you know it, Beck, probably better than me. Yeah, it's, but, uh, it's bigger and bigger every day, I think. Mm-hmm. Technology can be a very good thing. Yeah. And a very bad thing. And just simple things like a child having a photo of themselves can be chi- distributing mm. child pornography. They send it to someone. In Victoria, our laws actually do allow similar age people to send messages to send um, sexually based images to each other of themselves um, however that's still an issue with federal law so if someone wants to take it to a federal level there could still be a conviction inv- or prosecution involved yeah it's messy I think I got back into the dark pit I'm sorry but no it is good because it's passing on those important messages about giving kids the power and the knowledge to make better choices yeah. so yeah. Uh, we do need to go for a break. We'll be coming back to wrap up. You're on Family Matters on Joy 94.9. This program contains topics that may be a trigger for some listeners. If you are affected, please call Switchboard or QLife 3pm to midnight daily on 1800 184 527 or Lifeline on 131114, 24 hours a day. This is Family Matters, nearly the end of Family Matters. I'm Beck, and I've been here with Steph and Clayton. It's been a really um, interesting show tonight. It's guys. been pretty intense, hasn't it? I think we're all feeling a bit wrung out. But look, I think it's important. I think family yeah. violence is an important topic to yeah. talk about. One thing that is really important when you come into these topics of family violence and if you have any exposure through friends or yourself or whatever else is that self care. And Oh, everybody needs to make sure they're doing what they need to do to manage their self-care. It could be having a bath with candles or um, it could be having a really intimate dinner with your partner or having a, you know... Oh, for me, it's video games. I escape through video games. Yeah. So we all have that thing. Yeah. Beck, I believe it would be football. It would be football, yeah. yes. Kind of, not this year. It's not gone well for me. Okay. But, you know, yep. in happier times, yes. Yeah. Steph, anything self-care that you can think of top of your head? Yoga. Yoga. Until, nice. and, 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 <laughs> Do you break your toe. Do you break your toe. <laughs> and you're certainly in a job where a lot of self-care yeah. would be required. Yeah, it's so. really important. And, yeah. and I reach out to people that can help me too when I get to, you know, breaking point. Mm. But you know what might be another form of self-care? Listening to Family Matters podcasts. Exactly. Particularly if you're a parent and you've just suffered through book week and you've been up all night <laughs> making costumes for your children because that looks hard. I, I dressed as a mad scientist and someone did my makeup to make me look old. Oh, that's amazing. Because I just look at my friends on Facebook and their kids and I'm like, I do not want to stay up all night making a cat in a hat. Well, I was so relieved this year. We're in, in year six. We don't have... Uh book week yeah you've come through the other side i'm I'm at the other side but we will podcast this and all our other shows the second half of gina's chat um with damien Damien. will be up as part of that podcast too so that's really interesting to listen to the whole thing yeah and we apologize for not being played at all we just had so much we wanted to talk about tonight so yeah there's um, a lot to cover yeah and so but you will be able to get that through 
other sources of so. Wherever you get your good podcasts. You have been listening to Family Matters on Joy 94.9. Thank you so much, everybody. Good night, Clayton. Good night, Steph. Good night, Clayton. Good night, Beck. Coming up next is Well, Well, Well with Cal, and they are going to be talking about Jim Hyde. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.